If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In the hundred years since his tomb was discovered, I think it's fair to say that Tutankhamun has become the icon of ancient Egypt. His image has been plastered on everything from Egyptian pound coins to massive billboards. And he's been a muse for fashionistas and movie makers, a pop culture staple and even a political rallying cry. But what deeper meanings do his glitzy treasures have for us today? How does the way that we think about Tutankhamun expose thorny issues around the treatment of Egyptian heritage? And can an obsession with the pharaoh even distort our view of Egyptian history? I'm Ellie Cawthorn, and in this new History Extra podcast series on Tutankhamun, we're marking the centenary of the discovery of the pharaoh's tomb by exploring his life, death and legacy. We'll travel back to the ancient empire the boy king ruled over and investigate what his dazzling treasures and mummified remains can tell us about ruling and dying in ancient Egypt. In this final episode, we're going to be grappling with the somewhat contentious legacy of Tutankhamun today, examining how his image has been used, and perhaps overused, in the centuries since his tomb was discovered. To tell us more, I spoke to Professor Elizabeth Froude and Dr. Heba Abdal-Gawed. Liz is Associate Professor of Egyptology at the University of Oxford and a former director of the Griffith Institute, which houses Howard Carter's archive. She also presented the 2020 BBC4 documentary Tutankhamun in Colour. Heba is an Egyptian Egyptologist who's currently working on UCL's Egypt's Dispersed Heritage Project, which aims to centre Egyptian voices in the story of Egyptology and rethink the ways that Egyptian cultural artefacts are displayed and presented. So these two experts spend a lot of their time thinking about why we're still so obsessed with Tutankhamun today. Over to Liz and Heba. The starting point for this, I would say, is that it's the greatest, arguably the greatest archaeological discovery ever in in the history of of archaeological practice. There's very few discoveries that you could say um, have had a similar global impact. 
So I think if you if you kind of take that as a starting point, and that's that's one reason why it continues to have this resonance, and then you can draw out different strands. So that's where I, that's where I would start with answering that question, and I'm sure Heba can nuance it further. I think because it it ticks the three main boxes that people are usually interested in ancient Egypt from, there is a discovery that has been uh, done by absolute chance. This is one thing. Second, it's gold. Usually ancient Egypt <laughs> is sadly um, interlinked with gold in the public imagination. And um, the third is uh, the mania around it in the sense of how it became a symbol of ancient Egypt as part of human history that Everyone can have a claim for Tutankhamun, even if it's outside of Egypt. And it became an icon for the world, not just for Egypt, of what an archaeological discovery looks like. And that's um, usually what fascinates people around ancient Egypt. Discoveries, gold, and a pharaonic royal story that everyone could be uh, attached to. So we've got gold, jewels and a very seductive story that's told about an Indiana Jones-esque discovery. It's easy to see the appeal. But Heba raised something really intriguing there that's worth a bit of unpicking. Tutankhamun's story has travelled far beyond Egypt. It's one that people across the world, especially in Europe and America, have felt especially attached to. Why is that? Probably the best discussion that I've seen of this in some ways is is the recent book by Christina Riggs called Treasured, where she looks at how the the Tutankhamun legacy has shaped certain geopolitical or has been part of certain geopolitical discourses and activities in the 20th century coming into, into our century. And it's very, very interesting. And in that book, Treasured, Professor Christina Riggs explores how Tutankhamun's image has captivated generations since its discovery. And as she reveals, there were always people who stood to benefit financially from this obsession with Tutankhamun, or Tutmania, being exported across the globe. In my kind of personal experience, which relates a little bit to what Christina says in her book, the people that have responded most to things like the documentary and wrote, have written emails to me saying how much they liked the documentary were often people that saw the 1972 exhibition in the British Museum, the kind of blockbuster exhibition which had people queuing around the block. And you know, I've received emails from people who say that they were school children at the time and how it just totally transformed their idea of the ancient past and so it was quite um, quite a sort of a game changer for for these these young kids. So I think there's these blockbuster exhibitions um, have had a huge impact. Some of you listening may even remember visiting that famous exhibition, coming face to face with Tutankhamun's treasures, or in my case, coming face to face with some pretty impressive replicas of his treasures in the mystical surroundings of Doncaster Dome in the early 2000s. Yes, even replicas of those artefacts had the power to make an impression. Alongside exhibitions, why else might so many of us across the globe have felt such a strong affinity with Tutankhamun since childhood? I think there's something in what Hibba said about the allure of gold. 
I look at my own son and how interested he is in materials and gold. And so I think there's a real allure and the mask has become such an icon of this. And it's been, it's the sort of thing that you can buy replicas of, you can buy small toys of, um, you will see in most museum gift shops that have Egyptian collections, there will be something that evokes the mask. There is a something about the way the mask draws us in as through its its material presence, I think. And the strange appeal of this mask is something that we'll return to later. Throughout our conversation, both Heber and Liz were keen to stress that while Tutankhamun's appeal may be universal, the meanings behind it are multidimensional, dependent on who you are, what generation you may be in, where you are in the world. And nowhere is the pharaoh more omnipresent than in his home nation. Tut is the pride of Egypt. I, I, I do have to say, even up till today, Tutankhamun only paired with the, the head of Nefertiti. These are the two main icons for Egypt in the visual identity. It's the brand of what makes Egypt popular around the world. It's a, a sign of attraction. We would have it on our one Egyptian pound coin. So it's something that you touch and see nearly every day. It is something that you would see in modern Egyptian fashion, in Egyptian photography, in graffiti. There is so much influence of the thought objects that you would see that people are doing, I think, most of the time unconsciously, because it is part of us. It becomes part of our everyday. You you would do it and you don't realize that you're doing it. I can pinpoint it because I'm an Egyptologist, I'm a researcher. I can see where the influence of the blue and gold are coming from. But Tutankhamun isn't only a pop culture icon in Egypt. As Heber told me, his image also has a deeper political resonance. The discovery came at at a very crucial moment for the anti-colonial activism that was happening in Egypt at the time. This is the single incident of an archaeological discovery where the finds were not divided between Egypt and foreign powers. So this is the sole discovery that all the artifacts stayed and remain within Egypt due to the political activism at the time. He was very much a trigger, a trigger in the psychological, emotional and political sense, because that was a moment of reinvention and reflection of Egyptian identity. Political activists in Egypt at the time used this as a trigger or as a way into um, not only motivating the Egyptians towards activism against colonialism, but equally they used it as some sort of pressure on the colonial power. And this reminds us of how archaeological discoveries were very much linked to colonial political events as well. Because usually the archival record makes archaeological excavations look very peaceful. Look that they have nothing to do with any military power or any any of the political incidents that were happening just nearby the excavation site. But in reality, the aftermath of the discovery and the political events and the way the pressure that was made and the activism that was put forward for the finds to stay in Egypt makes it a turning point in Egyptian archaeological history, but equally Egyptian political history in terms of the reframing of the national identity at the time. And this political legacy can still be felt in Egypt today. In any act of political activism in the street, when graffiti art gets inspiration from ancient Egypt, you would usually find Tutankhamun and Nefertiti. Interestingly, 
both historically for ancient Egypt did not contribute much to the political scene in reality, but it's the story of either their discovery in the case of Tutankhamun and the anti-colonial activism that came with it, which is something that we get taught at school. This is part of our history curricula. This is where the pride itself comes from. It's this sense of ownership. It's what we can point and and say, we do own ancient Egyptian heritage. It's Tutankhamun that we end up pointing at, even up till today. While this political dimension of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb is key to how it's taught in Egypt, I think it's fair to say that when this story has traditionally been retold, in the UK at least, the political dimension has been, if not entirely lost, then at the very least overlooked. I don't think we do a very good job of telling the story. Um, I think we're starting to do a better job. And I think within the the Egyptological discourse, so the subject specialist discourse, I think Christina Riggs, her recent book, have really pushed um, Egyptology and, and scholars who work on this material and who work on Egypt more broadly to take a good look at themselves and the narratives they produce. I think she's been she's been groundbreaking in her in her work on this. But I think we can always do better. We can do better in terms of our media work. People in the media come to people like me for advice about how to do this. And if they do that, we could help with the telling of the better story as long as we put that first and foremost in our minds. And then going back to you know the primary school, you know, if it's going to be part of curricula here in the UK, then we should be telling or slightly embedding a more complex story. And I don't think we should be waiting for students to be coming to university to get a more complicated story. At primary school, we should be telling the story differently um, and at least opening up the possibility that it's not a superhero narrative, that it is always a collaboration and that it had these broader political impacts, especially you know for Egypt in particular. And I think we could be talking about that and and getting our students to think about that right from the beginning. Egypt is totally missing from this story. (laughs) Egypt doesn't exist in the story of Tutankhamun, at least my Egypt, the Egypt that I live in or the one that lives within me. This, This is not the Egypt that I know. It's even a problem of how we are starting currently to confront the colonial practices and their legacies is that we never think that these practices and legacies do have a real impact, did and still do have a real impact on Egyptian people's lives today. We got totally dismissed, totally disenfranchised from the story. We got not only dismissed from the story of thought, but we got dismissed from the whole narrative of ancient Egypt as a result. And Being invisible means that we're stigmatized, we're stereotyped, we are not seen as descendants of the ancient Egyptians. Ancient Egypt is seen as a culture that is uncontested, unclaimed, we have no right. We are not prioritized when it comes to who who owns ancient Egypt, if this is a question that one should be asked. But on the other hand, we are usually blamed when anything happened to Egyptian heritage. Whenever there is any negative story, uh, one of destruction, one of neglect, we come at the forefront, we, we make the headlines. But we never make the headlines when it's a positive story of a discovery. 
particularly when it comes to historical archaeological excavations or historical work. What I would love to see, which is starting to happen today, is having more emphasis on the Egyptian contribution to the archaeological work. Because Howard Carter himself, in his diary, he confessed that he had help from the Abdurrasul family, an Egyptian family of excavators and archaeologists. And this never gets into today's narrative, at least in a museum setting or in the popular setting. Yes, we are having these discussions in the Egyptological world, which is extremely important. It's about time. It's actually too late that we're just discussing this today. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. During her research into the presentation of Egyptian heritage in the West, Something that Hebbers identified is a disconnect in visitors' minds between the pharaohs and pyramids image of Tutankhamun's Egypt and Egyptians today. If I'm visiting a museum in the West and I'm standing nearby a group of visitors who are admiring heritage coming from my country, they would never think for a moment that I could be Egyptian as well standing beside them because I don't immediately look like the Egypt they want to know or the Egypt they prefer. And this is at the heart of the issue. Much of the current socio-political stigmas and stereotypes that Egypt and the whole Middle East and North African region, if we can call it so, the museums have um, a huge part to play in how we are equally unseen and equally invisible. So I would prefer to have Egypt at the center of the story, not just of Tot, but of ancient Egypt in general, opening doors for more Egyptian sides of the stories, more Egyptian-led narratives. That can a little bit help us in defying the colonial narrative that sadly still persists up till today. If being enamoured with the grandeur of ancient Egypt can distort or completely overshadow our view of Egypt today, then what about Tutankhamun himself? Can our obsession with Tut and his treasures also warp our view of Egyptian history as a whole? The Egypt that people perceive or that people come face to face with in museums or even in um, history curriculum uh, all over the world. It's an Egypt that ends by the Byzantine period. It's once Alexander the Great stepped in, that's it. Egypt stopped to exist. There There is no Egypt. We just stopped to exist altogether. We got wiped off the map, which is not true. It's it's multi-layered, it's multi-cultured, and it's a country that remains buzzing with continuity and change. And this selectivity of the only part of history that the West could be affiliated with, it's racist, and I'm, sa- I'm, I'm sorry to say so, but, but it is in a way that it's only the part of history that the West can feel closer to, that gets acknowledged or gets remembered. But the other layers that come later, be it Coptic Christians, Islamic Egypt, even contemporary Egypt, these are parts of Egyptian history that the West do not feel direct relationship with, which ends up 
getting totally dismissed, which creates a very distorted image of, as I say, a concept rather than a country. The way we are portrayed, we are portrayed as a concept that exists in the past. It's frozen in time and place, and that's it. Nothing happened after Pharaonic Egypt. Egypt, the way that the West wants to see it, ceased to exist. Just to say, I think any person listening to this, especially if they're listening in the US or the UK, next time you go into a museum and you go into the Egyptian collection, I encourage you to think about this point and ask yourself, like, what happens when I walk out of these galleries and I've walked past the Greco-Roman section if the galleries are organised chronologically, or I've walked past some you know, Byzantine or Coptic material and walked out of these galleries and walked into another civilization or another part of the museum. And I think of the museum that I'm right next to, which is the Ashmolean, which has a wonderful collection. But the Islamic material, some of it is from Egypt, um, is separated, you know, gallery-wise. And so I would encourage people just to think about that. And I think my favorite, one of my, well, I have many favorite museums in Egypt, but my favorite um, one that I went to most recently when I was last in, in Cairo was the National Museum of Egyptian Civilization, which pr- brings material from, you know, across Egyptian experience into single galleries. And it's extraordinary. And it really it, it contextualizes the material that I work on, the ancient stuff, so beautifully. And by focusing on Tutankhamun, a boy king who arguably wasn't all that important in socio-political terms, are there other figures in Egypt's past that we might lose sight of? Ordinary people. Exactly. The artists behind the artefacts. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Because all of these artefacts are actually, they, they should remind us of the artists, these amazing, extremely skilled Egyptian artists who, sadly, we we don't know their names, we don't know who they were, but if it weren't for them, we wouldn't have had any of this. And Tutankhamun himself as a figure, I'm sorry, his contribution to Egypt's past or present is not really much like as just as a king, but it is the artists behind these wonderful artifacts that we should be remembering every day. And I wish that one of the coming exhibitions that we have on, it should be only solely about the artists. Yes, we don't know their names, we don't know their identity, but we we know a lot about the craftsmanship and how the work was organized at the time. We've got so much details from papyri, from the documentations that the ancient Egyptians have left us on how the, the network of artists and scribes and workmen behind this operated. This is what should be into the spotlight. Yes, exactly. As Liz has said, it is the ordinary people behind these amazing artifacts that we should be remembering, not the boy king. I was speaking to my colleague Richard Parkinson here and he's just curated a very small exhibition in the Bodleian Library looking at the archival materials that we have in the Griffith Institute and he was asked what his favourite material from the archive is and he said it's it's the mistakes. So it's the little things that, you know, the artists got wrong. I don't like to use that word or the kind of errors that they made when they were kind of dismantling things and putting things into the tomb. Um, And there's also, you know, where the tomb robbers were active. One of his favourite photographs, and it's in his catalogue from the exhibition, is a photograph of a a 
sort of a pot of ointment where you can see the fingerprints that have gone in to take the ointment out. You know, these ancient people who have gone into this tomb, rummaged around and chosen to put their fingers in the ointment to get the scent to put on this. Who knows? But it's that that real connection with the humanity of it. And I think that's what um, Hebba's just emphasized. You know, if we look at the craftsmanship, if we look at the occasional mistake, if we look at the actions of the people that went in later, all of that just brings us down to an individual human level, which I think we totally lose when we kind of get caught up in the glamour of the king. While Tutankhamun is clearly just the tip of the iceberg of a vast wave of fascinating Egyptian history, it seems unlikely that interest in the boy king will die down anytime soon. As both of our experts said, the discovery of his tomb was one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time. So if, sorry Heber, Egyptologists do keep working on Tutankhamun, what are some of the most exciting possibilities that might lie ahead? I mean, for me, I think um, the objects from the tomb are still vastly understudied. Um, a huge amount of work has been done by the people that have been preparing them for display in the Grand Egyptian Museum. And, you know, that work is stimulating publications and incredible research. And we're starting to see new analyses of things like the textiles, the dagger, you know, that just all of this is starting to generate research that is entering at least the Egyptological domain if it's not kind of going out into the wider, wider world, which hopefully it will. Um, so for me personally, um, selfishly, that's where I get really excited is these, these new studies of detailed, detailed analytical studies of the objects themselves and how they were made, the craftsmanship, the process of creation, all of that sort of thing. So I love that. Of course, as an Egyptologist, I'm also very influenced by the critical discourses around the discovery, and I'm very aware especially for my teaching of how much we need to be thinking about Egyptian perspectives and talking to our Egyptian colleagues about how to bring that into the way we approach the subject as teachers and as researchers, of course. Um, so the work of people like um, Fatma Keshk, Heba herself, um, Hind Mohammed Abdul Rahman, who is doing this amazing work on rediscovering the Egyptians who were involved in the excavation. I mean, there's so much important scholarship, and I think we need to be aware of that and we need to be working together as a subject to bring all these voices in. Something that usually distresses me so much that whenever there is documentation of a thought mania, there is never a documentation of the impact of thought in Egypt. We usually know of thought mania documentation of how he, he featured in Western movies, songs, etc., etc., fashion, but the rest of the world know nothing about how we Egyptians feel about Tutankhamun. And I think that it is about time that this narrative changes, that Egypt becomes, again, as I said, not only in the sense of the discovery, but equally in the impact, not only from the political moment of the anti-colonial activism, but equally up till today, the way the image itself is used, not only by the state for as a national identity icon, but the way that people are still today 
bringing meaning or new meanings to the objects nearly every day unconsciously. I don't think we can escape talking about Tutankhamun, that's the reality of things, in order to be realistic, as much as I wish that we stop talking about Tutankhamun. But again, we can use this public discourse or the fascination that the public have into bringing something more positive, into defying this narrative. And I wish that we can have less Howard Carter, less the boy king, and more Egypt, be it the ordinary Egyptians from the past or the ordinary Egyptian during colonial times or the ordinary Egyptians today. Less of the most powerful and more of the less powerful. After speaking to our experts, it's clear that we need to add nuance to the story of Howard Carter's discovery to understand the political undercurrents and look beyond Tutankhamun for a better understanding of the rich breadth of Egyptian history as a whole. But hopefully, this series has proved that behind all the gold and the glamour, there's some really fascinating history to be found in the story of Tutankhamun and the discovery of his tomb. And despite all the critical analysis, a hundred years on, there's still something undeniably magical about the boy king and his treasures. The facial expression of Tot with this simple smile he's got in his face it makes it quite personal you can totally relate to him you can look at the mask and you don't just see an artifact but you can see a person then i have to say whenever i'm at the egyptian museum in cairo and when i see groups of tourists coming face to face with tot for the first time and the fascination you'd see in people's faces maybe i got used to it because i saw it so many times it doesn't have this impact on me but witnessing this impact it makes me think wow like it is it it does have this profound impact on people when you come face to face with it it has this magnificence and i know i don't know if it's just the media, the mania around it, or if it's the object itself and thinking of how this dates back to thousands of years ago and it comes with such amazing perfection of craftsmanship and the way you look at it, it looks like it was just done yesterday and I can't even put a word on how I see the, the impression that people, the, the way that people see it, but seeing people coming face to face with it for the first time, it can make me a little bit imagine how Uh, Howard Carter and the Egyptian excavator there felt because it is overwhelming it's you would get like whoa like this is how every single tourist gets into the room and see it for the first time the, the impression they have the skill of the Egyptian artists has a lot to do with that too I love that I absolutely love that because it just it reminds us I think that we've got all these critical discourses around it all of this analysis that we can do, but in the end, you know, it's the object or objects, plural, if we open up to the whole tomb, that draw us in. And sometimes I think we lose sight of that in our, especially, you know, intellectual discussions over what these objects have come to mean. And so that's such a good reminder, I think. Many thanks to my experts for this episode. Professor Elizabeth Frood and Dr. Heba Abdel-Gawed. And thanks again to all the other brilliant experts who shared their expertise with me for this series. Akasha Eldali, Toby Wilkinson, Guy Delabadier, Joyce Tildesley, Chris Norton and Aidan Dodson. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this series, which was written and edited by me, Ellie Cawthorn, and produced by Brittany Colley. Additional checks on this episode by Rob Attar and Daniel Adamson.